Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is an RNZ podcast. The doctors call this a rest cure, but I feel lazy. I read the newspapers every morning and see that the suffrage movement is, well, suffering more than moving. We thought we were changing the world. They were very against women. In those days, they didn't count. The values and even that that carrot is putting out into the world, I mean, people are going to see it and they're going to take whatever they choose to take from it, and I think that's really important to be discerning around that. Femme strength is traditionally more tied into emotional intelligence. Went on deck about seven, the waves rolling high, ship pitching and tossing about like a cork. One moment we're down in the valley and the waters seem as if they must break over us and engulf the ship. The session would go better, basically, because a woman could comment on a woman's appearance and say, we could change your hair a little bit. Hi, I'm Sonia Sly, and this is episode six of Beyond Kate. And again, we're traversing women in history to today. And this time, it's an exploration of the creative kind, women and the arts, including some who've been left off our history books, which we'll get to in a bit. Firstly, some music. I headed to Great South Road in Auckland to meet Kay Eady and her son John at their family-owned business, Lewis Eady Limited. It has a rich history that dates back more than a century. Yeah, well, it's kind of... Steinway's the best piano that you will find to begin with. And um, this is quite unique in the sense that it's like having a concert in a actually playing this state-of-the-art piano, but it's definitely music to my ears. Somebody just came across us and said, you might be interested in this, but we did know that my husband's great-grandmother and his grandmother were both members of the, the women's Christian temperance movement, I think. What have you discovered? So it was Mary Louise Eady? Mary Louisa. Uh, she was the great-grandmother, and she and her husband, William, were the original Edies to come out, or of our particular branch of family. They came out in 1865. And do you know what the, their life was like before they came? It was very difficult for them. They were of a sort of lower middle class of family. She herself was well-educated. She was a church organist and a teacher. So her family had educated her to be able to support herself if she needed to. He came from farming background, but farming became very difficult in Britain following the Industrial Revolution. Tenant farmers had a hard time. 
So in the end, I think he set up as a, a meat store in Market Harbour, or Northampton actually, and sold meat that was supplied by his relatives. And he got into difficulty with that. He went and worked in Newgate Market for some time. But I think they really were in financial difficulties. And at the time, Britain was overrun with population and the government didn't know what to do with all these people. So immigration became a a solution for them because the colonies were opening up, trade was opening up with with Australia and New Zealand in particular, being promoted as a wonderful new opportunity for people. Mary Louisa came out on the Andrew Jackson ship, which she wrote about in her diary of the people she met and of the journey she had. Blew a fearful gale about eight o'clock this morning, sails hard at work all night. Captain was pulling away at the ropes with, with the sailors when William got up. Went on deck about seven, the waves rolling high, ship pitching and tossing about like a cork. One moment we're down in the valley and the water seemed... You can sort of see she looks like she would have been a solid, sensible sort of woman. So, and that was an earlier one of him. And we've got hmm. four photos on the wall over there. Uh, you've got Lewis top right, um, so Ray, his son, um, top left, and then John, my father, and myself. So, John's talking about photos of four generations of Edie men who have, at some stage, run Lewis Eddie Limited. It was founded in 1884 and the store specialises in Steinway pianos and is now the oldest family-owned and operated music business in Australasia. And that's the Andrew Jackson, that's what the ship looked like. Wow, it's quite big, wasn't it? Mm. Quite stately. It had about 300 passengers on board. Would you have said that, I guess, they were accommodated, you know, quite nicely on that travel? Well, the... They came out as second-class passengers and, and there were steerage. Steerage people they had a very hard time because it was very cramped. The, as second-class passengers, they were paying their own way, so they were better treated. William acted as the ship's butcher on the voyage out and I believe that was so that he could make them cabin-class passengers and that gave them much better food and everything else. They, they were able to have the food that was killed on the boat. They took live animals on, you see, and killed them. I, I learned this because she says in her diary that she had to hang on to the table. The, pit, the boat was pitching and rolling so much while she was trying to make the pudding. And I thought, why was she trying to make the pudding? And that's how I found that mm. uh, that's what they did. They prepared it and had it cooked up. And after their journey, when they finally made it to Auckland, they became active members of the Congregational Church. And it's also where the history of the Edies and their involvement in music began to take shape. He was a lay teacher, I think. So their life centred around religion, and she taught young, young women there. They would have had an easier life here. So she was teaching music? Nowhere have I found that she taught music as a music teacher in Auckland, but I imagine she taught her children, and I imagine that she probably included music lessons in whatever she taught at the Congregational Church, because the churches provided a lot of the education at that time, before sort of schools were fully developed. So a lot of the what they referred to as Sunday schools was actually... Um, proper education for the children in Auckland. And we'll be delving into the topic of education in the next episode. She was the organist, I think, for the church in Creighton, where she lived. 
So she would have come from quite a middle class family. Yes, it was unusual to have that sort of education unless your parents thought that you would end up being a governess or a teacher. I mean, a lot of the, the more genteel women would have learnt embroidery and not to be an organist. And remember how Felix Maguire, in one of our earlier episodes, was the president of the local choral society? Well, Mary Louisa was also involved. It sounds like they were a massive way to pass the time, a form of entertainment, if you will. Really, I think it was part of the culture of the time. And the children played in the orchestra and they gradually developed. The sons were all very musical. Arthur Eady had a band and an orchestra. He became by appointment to the Governor-General. His um, orchestras always played at Government House for their events. Lewis always tuned the pianos, so he became by appointment to tune the pianos in Government House. The other brother, he played the piano very well, but he didn't pursue a musical career. They used to employ bands to play at things like the, the Great Exhibition that was held in the Domain. And, and music. also places like the Orange Coronation Hall, yes, which was built was... You know, very much as a dance hall for that generation. So actually, I mean, they would have been quite integral to the you know, social the whole life culture, here cultural yes, life. because you have to remember. Call the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't. <laughs> the, the thing is that music was, after all, the entertainment centre for people that came out. Now, what I think would have been hard for Mary Louisa would have been coming out without a piano because it was very expensive to bring a piano out. Because they take up a lot of space. And shipping is still expensive today too. So, some things never change. Now, music has been passed down the generations of the Edie family. I've, you know, I've grown up in the business. I worked Saturdays when I was at school, but I didn't really feel any great sort of burden taking it on. And how do you feel about the roots that kind of date way back in your family history? Well, I'm learning a lot about this today, so it's quite interesting. <laughs> All of the, the Edie women that, that I've certainly known have been quite strong-minded people, and you know, that becomes a reflection on you as a person, you know, as a male as well. One moment we're down in the valley, and the waters seem as if they must break over us and engulf the ship. The next, we're riding on the top of an immense wave. It looks fearfully grand. The sun is shining at times, and as the waves roll and the spray blows about, it shows all the colours of the rainbow. Now we're making our way onto land and heading to Te Papa to explore the art of photography. Carte de visite or cabinet card formats that were 19th century. So there's a card, a really finished card. You can see it's got a beveled edge with gold trim. Meet Lisa Mitchell, and I'm curator of historical photography based in the art team. And it turns out that women were essential in the area of photography back in the day. Male photographers would often hire female assistants because a woman could comment on a woman's appearance and say, We could change your hair a little bit or whatever. It would make a better photo, but of course you're getting into dodgy territory with a man doing that. But one of the areas of tension with photography is that it wasn't considered an art form because of the commercial aspect. And maybe there are people out there today who feel the same way. Fine art had a very high ground. People often felt challenged by the arrival of photography and what threat it had on art. So it was obviously looked down on by a lot of fine arts. But also Harriet 
for, for one, and, and whom a little bit in their advertising and stories they had about them, emphasised that they're fine art photographers, and photographers often did that as a, it's almost like a code word for quality, and um, saying we are quality, skilled photographers who product, I suppose, good portraits, prints that last. And that was essential. You see, around the same time, people were beginning to pick up photography as a hobby, but it didn't mean they were any good. It's the same today. Just because people have cameras on their phones, it doesn't make them a skilled artist or photographer. In the 19th century, a lot of people picked it up to try it out and, you know, obviously people coming here trying to do any kind of work they could. Don't forget that this was a time where people were carving out new ground. They stumbled on some new technology and ran with it, as people do today. But while there were female assistants in the field of photography, there were also talented women photographers, and two that Lisa knows of, who were prominent in New Zealand, but have never been recognised in our history books. One of those was... Louisa Herman, who was the Wellington photographer. Who took lots of portraits of MPs of the time. She migrated with her father to New Zealand, leaving her life in Britain behind. And when she got here, she started working in the back room of... The Connolly and Herman studio, which was in Lambton Quay. In 1890, her and Richard Herman got married and they set up a studio in Cuba Street. Two years later, she gave birth to a daughter. Tragically, two months later, her husband passed away of typhoid. But she pushed on, running the business on her own as a single mother. It seems nothing could stop her. She did, in 1897, build a... um, There was a fire and the studio got rebuilt and it was a very lavish... um, It was sort of trumped as the lavish, most well-appointed studio in the colony at the time when it reopened. So she must have been doing quite well. I guess she may have got an insurance payout as well. Louisa was savvy and talented. She set up a brand spanking new store on the corner of Cuba Street in Dixon, where today you'll find an optometrist. So this was a multi-storey... It had waiting rooms, toilets, dressing rooms, over three levels. There were examples of the portraits down at street level. On the top floor was a factory-type area of the studio, I suppose, with dark rooms, retouching areas. But it also trumped that there was separate toilets for female employees up there as well. And as you'll know from one of the previous episodes, a lack of facilities for women had been a massive problem. Plus, it meant too that she could make her clients or sitters more comfortable, and that means more business. A lot of um, celebrities, well-known people went there. This is um, Seddon's son, um, about to embark for the Boer War in South Africa, being photographed by Herman in the studio, and it's published in the New Zealand Graphic. Which was one of the first publications to publish photographs sort of trumped itself as an illustrated newspaper. All the portraits for the um, members of the New Zealand House of Representatives from 1903 to 05. So they're all photographs individually and then you can see they've been cut out and mounted onto this board with the, so that would have hung Parliament. And she also had celebrity sitters, like touring actors who came into town and wanted a photo or two to advertise their shows. So that then the photo could go to something like the New Zealand Graphic or the Auckland Weekly News or one of the illustrated newspapers and it would be published saying, you know, Miss so-and-so is in town. So considering she took portraits of lots of important people, why was she not recognised in our history as an artist? 
you know, there's angles around, almost like little slights that seem mm. to want to remove validity or, you know, almost gender them out of the picture, out of history. Mm. The same went for a young Harriet Cobb. But it wasn't that society gendered her out of the picture. In fact, it was her own family. Um, Harriet Cobb was based in Napier and Hastings. She came out here from the UK. Her father was a photographer and he taught her the trade. When she married, um, her husband also learnt the trade and they came out to New Zealand in 1884 and within the year had set up a studio in Napier and then the following year in 1885 in Hastings. Uh, we, we've got a relative over in England and he's just written a whole lot of stuff here. This is Len Cobb. And we're, just, just, we're just looking at this in, in, in absolute horror. And his daughter Martina. How, how badly they downplay the, the woman's role in the business. I visited them at Len's cosy townhouse in suburban Auckland. Both are artists in their own right. Len was once a painter, photographer and also worked in advertising and some of his work lines the lounge wall. They are descendants of Harriet Cobb, one of the female photographers who have been left out of the pages of our history books. Uh, don't forget, this is 1862 when they set up business in right. photography in Bournemouth. They were very against women. In those days, they didn't count. Mm. And these women, Mary, that lady there, Harriet, was a, already a very good portrait artist. That lady there went on to be a magnificent. She photographed the Swedish royal family. She created a book on children that sold right throughout Europe. No one took any notice of her. She won awards, but none of the... These men acknowledged her. So Harriet and her sister Mary had plenty of talent as photographers, but they simply lived at a time where men always put their best foot forward, and that also meant using, in Harriet's dad's case, his daughter's work to promote the studio without crediting them. It's time to head upstairs to check out the camera, a piece of Len and Martina's history. The, the camera that she brought out from England in 1883. This is where the film goes in. So she would put the, put the slide in there and, and then close it up. To take a photo, she would pose the two children Get the camera ready, put the, put the glass in, and say, children, hold it. Take the shutter off and count one, two, three, four, and put the shutter back on. It sounds kind of labour-intensive. Is she pulling something at the same time? Like, how does it...? Oh, no, that's all she did. What kind of camera is it? Is well, it off the line? They call it a dry plate. Uh, in those days, it was the start of, uh, really, the photographic revolution because all the technology was growing every day and after a while they did develop lenses with uh, shutters and stuff but that was to come that was a long time ago. Harriet started working for her dad when she was 15 years old. She had a long career working right up until 10 years before her death. Her husband as it turns out was a very religious man. They had 15 children together 
15 children. I know, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. But while all of this was happening, her husband tried to elbow Harriet out of the business. But she wasn't having a bar of it. And also... She wasn't confident enough. So it called for drastic measures. She kicked him out, took over the job of uh, photographing children. Yeah, she had, she had the kids and then just... Said, see you later, off. see ya. I wonder how rare that was. Look, it started way back when she was born in 1846, way back in Norfolk in a farming community. Then her, her dad, who became the first photographer, he was only a groom looking after horses in sort of stables and stuff. Worked himself up to be a manservant, but it laid the foundation for Harriet to become super efficient. She was the eldest girl and she had that drive in her. Now, Harriet signed the 1893 women's suffrage petition along with her daughter. She'd had a privileged life, arriving on a ship called the Lady Jocelyn, and they'd paid their own way. Len even has old journals. In it, it shows that there were parties on the way out to New Zealand. Can you believe it? But Harriet's interest in women's suffrage was driven by a desire for equality. And I think that's why Harriet left England, to be able to become somebody that was recognised for her own work out here where we had that, that new slate. I've come across this written online. Um, because um, early woman photographers mo- mainly specialised in portraiture, that they're not considered artists. And it seems crazy to me to make that distinction because in fine art and painting... So a much of a painter is, a, is still an artist, you know, and it's like, why are you drawing a line here? Is it, is it just because it's female work? Is it getting shoved to the side because with, with this nice little, trite little excuse? I think in her lifetime, she was quite a big deal. She was definitely really somebody who made it. It's only with the passage of time that, and, and the decisions somewhere or other that, that, that woman's portrait photography is not serious work, that it's just been allowed to just slide under the radar and be forgotten instead of being taking its place in the history of New Zealand photography as an important aspect. Next I headed down to Dunedin to meet jeweller Jane Dodd and my first stop is the little workshop underneath her house. Well recently I've been working mostly with wood and bone, a little bit of stone as well and I've been making quite sculptural pieces. And what Jane did as a way to research her family history was to make a series of jewellery inspired by her great-grandmother's journey to New Zealand. Traced Catherine's journey from Scotland to New Zealand. So I did the, an exhibition called The Ends of the Earth. So Jane managed to find the diary of another woman who came on the same ship, which meant she got an idea of... What the weather was like and people who died on board and from that I built up a narrative that I based my jewellery around. Which culminated as? Scenes through the portholes of the ship. I did these bracelets and necklaces 
Jane's forebear, Catherine McCaskill, came out to New Zealand as a domestic servant. She was 32 years old at the time and unmarried. She'd come to New Zealand with her sister and it's possible that she answered the call of an advert much like this. Directors of the New Zealand Shipping Company do hereby give notice that they are ready to receive applications for a free passage to the town of Wellington, Port Nicholson, New Zealand, from agricultural labourers, shepherds, miners, brickmakers, mechanics, handicraftsmen and domestic servants being married and not exceeding 40 years of age, and also from single females travelling with a near relative and single men accompanied by one or more adult sisters, not exceeding, in either case, the age of 30 years. Strict inquiry will be made to made as to quality, qualification. And they came from the very northwestern side of the northwestern isle off the northwestern coast of Scotland. It was basically as far as you could get from New Zealand. They had a big family and I think they were exceedingly poor crofters and peat farmers and it was just these little really small little farms that really produced very little. I think they probably came because they were probably starving in in Scotland. Her older brother and an older sister had already come to New Zealand before she came. She lied about her age. I think she had to be under 30 to get assisted travel. Anyway, she came to New Zealand on the Kaikoura from Plymouth to um, Wellington and then she came down to Dunedin. Now when she arrived she was employed by Jane's great-grandfather Herman Dodd. His wife had passed away and he had teenage children. So he got Catherine to become his housekeeper and then they got married. I think it was probably quite convenient. He was 30 years older than her. She came from a little town called Sharda. How would you describe what the life was that she came to in New Zealand? My great-grandfather, who she uh, married, was was a draper. He owned a whole block of downtown, what nowadays would be a huge property investment. We don't know what happened to it because it didn't come down to any uh, of us. So. What's a draper? Someone who sells um, cloth and... Oh, um, like haberdashery. Yeah, but... Clothes probably as well, more towards a general store than than what we think of a, a, as a material shop now. You know, she landed on her feet, leading a, a very comfortable life. It was worth the wait for her, obviously. At, worth the journey, worth the seasickness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what does it mean to you to know that she signed this petition? Oh, it's just good, just good on her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about her character or but it shows to me that she had a an idea of her her own rights and wanted to present you know what um where she wanted the world to go and we've explored plenty of stories throughout the series of women who signed the petition but i can't help but wonder how suffragist kate shepherd felt about where things were really heading for women was the push for the vote worth it What were her frustrations? Was she driving a movement forward that most likely stretched her and absorbed all of her energy? I mean, as we know for women today, it often means that some parts of our lives crumble in the process when we're pushed to the point of exhaustion. 
The doctors call this a rest cure, but I feel lazy. I read the newspapers every morning and see that the suffrage movement is, well, suffering more than moving. We thought we were changing the world. I suppose we have, in a small way. Women's votes are something. But then there's the next thing. Another country with injustice. Another oppressed people. Women and children still suffering the effects of men and the demon drink. Always the next thing. This is actor Amy Talton. And when we met up, she was rehearsing the role of Kate Shepherd for a Wellington production at Circa Theatre called Modern Girls in Bed. I think it's sort of about 1904-ish and she was um, back in the UK, had gone back with her husband and was basically, yeah, really unhappy. Mm. <laughs> she sounds pretty <laughs> like frustrated is what I get the sense. When she got through it, you know, one, one achievement, it kind of just began to feel like there was always something else and there was always another thing. I mean, the women's votes was actually the way that she wanted to try and achieve temperance and get... Um, drink band but that was her first port of call and then it just sort of snowballed from there. Now she simply had enough and that goes against the image that we have of this robust woman who had energy to burn but in fact I think as women today many of us can probably relate to this version of Kate much more because we often burn the candle at both ends. And I just want to stay under this blanket. The profession of law has been thrown open to women. Legal separation from worthless husbands can now be obtained summarily and without expense. She was actually unwell with nerves. This is the fascinating bit because this is the bit you don't hear about. So all the frustrations and, and all the, the feeling like quite overwhelmed by the amount of work that there is to do. That feeling that you had to take all these tiny little steps to achieve this big thing that you were really after, which was equality for women. What do you think that she would think now if she was here? Like, <laughs> you know, being in her shoes for a moment in time. Shocked at how far everything has come, but also shocked that we still don't have equality. Anecdotally, she was a very humble person, but the script kind of plays up that perhaps by today's standards, she's still quite prudish. The writers have put in stuff about the counterpoint of Jacinda and the baby and um, what that means for where women have got to. Mm. But Kate Shepard's take on it that she's kind of appalled because her in her time she was trying to prove that women would not let mothering interfere with their politics. They've had enough of life. Director Rachel Leonard. They've had enough of the world, they've taken to bed. And I guess it is a place too where one can just be either on their own and their thoughts a bit vulnerable with nobody else watching. Yeah, that's right. And putting women in bed, you know, without the male gaze becomes about it being a place, um, not sexy time, but a place of vulnerability, but also rebuilding. It's a safe space where you're often alone or sometimes with a very good friend who can just, where you can just be and recharge and regroup. And I saw my mother do this, at my, um, who was a frontline social worker for child, youth and family for 20 years, and the work that she did would just take it out of her. And she would go hard solving New Zealand's problems all day, every day, and then a few weeks of that she would just crash and she would go to bed with a pile of novels and you wouldn't see her from... Friday till Sunday and she rebuilt the strength to get back up and go back out on Monday morning. And that's the thing. So many women today are juggling domestic duties, raising a family, having a career, pulling overtime. 
It's round the clock and it takes its toll. The writers have hit something very poignant and very uh, powerful. And kind of reclaiming the bed. This is Cherie Jacobson, who co-wrote the play with actor and writer Alex Lodge. You know, in the past, women were called hysterical or put on bed rest for various reasons. For nerves. Yeah. And of course there's lots of good reasons to go on bed rest, but we're looking at it as a place of dreaming and scheming and rest and rejuvenation. Also confinement, like Kate Shepard is annoyed that she's in bed. She wants to get out deliver her speech in Berlin, keep making change, but she's really battling with this feeling of so much to do and... Exhaustion. Exhaustion. Emotional exhaustion. Which reflects so much of life today for women. It's hard and the work never stops. Modern Girls in Bed is a play with an all-female cast and at least three of the women have children. So what are the demands that they're faced with as actors, artists and mothers? Back to actor Amy Talton. I mean, it definitely has an impact. I have a sick child in the green room right now. It's life. I'm a single parent. There's definitely that personal counterbalance all the time as a parent, whether you're a single parent or a parent in a partnership. You've always got that mummy guilt versus the wanting to do what you feel like you need to do, as well as that parenting is hard and you just need breaks. I have been lucky enough in the last few years to work on productions that have been very family friendly. Having said that, I can only manage to do one show a year because it's not sustainable, because it's unfair on my child to actually not be there. Rachel Lennart again. I think it takes um, a particular type of decision to consciously decide that, yes, I'm going to continue to be an artist and a teacher and a parent at the same time. I did 10 months at home with my first daughter, loved it, but felt so much that sense of losing myself. I've just got to get back into this work, even part-time, and just have something for myself that fulfills me as a person and as an artist, as well as as a mother. I've got daughters, and I feel like there's a particular pressure to be at all as a mother to daughters, because I'm modelling what I want them to be as well, so, so that they can look back and go, she wasn't always there, it wasn't always easy, but she made it work, and so can I. So is the theatre world a place for equality for women? It certainly provided women with a platform to have a say, to speak their minds and, yes, to be political. But co-writer of Modern Girls in Bed, Alex Lodge, says... When you're a female playwright, you're always a female playwright. And, like, for us, like, it's also been quite hard with this play because for us it's like it's not just a feminist play it's a surrealist play and it's a historical play and it's a comedy but people are always like so tell us about your feminist play we're (laughs) in the women's theatre festival so that is a hard hurdle to jump lots of women will go to a play called 12 angry men yeah with 12 men in it But a lot of men will say, oh, it's in the Women's Theatre Festival. It's got a cast of seven women. I don't know if this is the show for me. And that's where the gender divide comes into play and how women and men want to see themselves reflected back. Or not, as the case may be. Now, it comes down to how we express ourselves and then how it's interpreted. Why can't men enjoy stories about women? I mean, they live with women, they interact with women every day. I can enjoy stories about men. Mm -hmm. It's a really hard barrier to cross. And none of them are called 12 Angry Women. 
would not get away with that for a minute, would we? No. Why, why didn't people not like angry women? Women or, are not allowed to be angry. Yeah. Not really. No. It's not sexy. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think like, a guy's idea about what makes it, like, what an angry woman is, is actually, I don't know, a little bit skewed because a woman needs to just be a bit forthright and actually say what she thinks and then all of a sudden, what's wrong with you? Oh, oh. my God, I'm backing away. This is yeah, weird. yeah, have an opinion but don't disagree with me. Yeah. And you see it in those things about management styles yeah. in business situations around how when women display behaviours that are typically male behaviours, they are judged much more harshly than a male manager would be for the same thing. We'll be unravelling this topic in episode eight. Two more to go when we get down to the business of work. Well, I am part of the band of Māori writers, um, of novelists. I'm a New Zealand writer. Author Paula Morris, who was also in the last episode, But this time, we're focusing on her as a creative and the interconnectedness of what it means to be a Māori woman in the arts. You know, I'm appearing at overseas festivals, like I'm about to go to one in India, I'm going to two in Canada, and my biography will read, Paula Morris is a New Zealand writer of Māori and English descent. So that's easier for overseas people to understand, because if you start putting in Ngāti Wai, Ngāti Whātua, they have no idea what that means. They think it's sort of an alternative name. So I have those inheritances. But I'm also a woman who lives now in the 21st century. That's a complex and complicated time for us. Recently, Paula's been learning to weave. It connects her to her Māori identity, but also what it means to tell stories within a community of other women. My grandmother was a weaver. I remember her as a child going up to Bastion Point at the Marae up there and she was working on a tukutuku panel with someone else that we now have in our home. She carried kete that she wove herself. She wore a, a hat made of harakeke that she wove herself, or one of her friends did. It was such a, a natural part of her identity. But that was lost with her, in a way. It wasn't something she passed on, because I think she was very much of that generation where, well, these are just the traditional arts. You don't need to learn them. I think she probably didn't realise how drastically things would be lost. So going back to learning those things that to my grandmother were very easy and were part of her youth and part of her adulthood as well, a lesson in how to connect with the past and with the people you love through making the things that they could make. I have no natural talent, it emerged, um, but I, I really enjoy it. I'm working on a feather cloak right now. That's taken me a long, long time, but I really, really enjoy making it. But for me to do something with my hands that didn't involve typing or writing, but at the same time to feel many of the same processes, you know, where you're spending time on something, you're learning a skill, you're making mistakes, you're fixing them, you're experimenting... And everything you do in your life and everything you see and hear becomes part of that creative process. It was good for me in being able to think a bit more laterally and to understand more Māori art forms as part of one big uh, approach to imagination and creative production, I suppose. Paula would be sitting at these weaving sessions for a full eight hours at a time, which means stories also become woven through the sessions. So I found it very relaxing and inspiring, as well as being obviously very frustrating because I was hopeless and had to keep (laughs) unpicking everything and redoing them. But I really liked um, being with the other women 
we were all strangers to each other before the year began. It's particularly good to hear stories. Once one of the other teachers came in to tell us uh, quite a long story about about her childhood and birth and concepts around herself as a weaver. And after she talked for a while, she said, well, that's enough, I suppose. And we all said, no, no, go on, please go on. Because we were all working and listening. And it's like being a child being read to in a way. Um, You're in the moment of the story with someone else. And it's a very rewarding experience. I really miss it this year, I have to say. I really miss it. And in some ways, I'm very conscious now that I am illiterate in my own way about those old ways of communicating. And it does just start to open windows on different ways of conveying narrative and expressing things. And two young women whose job it is to express themselves on and off camera are Thomas and Harcourt Mackenzie, the star of acclaimed film Leave No Trace. Was your dad in the service? He was. Do you feel safe living with your dad? We didn't need to be rescued. Your dad needs to provide you shelter and a place to live. He did. And actress Edna James from New Zealand film The Changeover. You gave me power over you. So I managed to snatch some time with them while they were hanging out on a shoot for Wellington Woman Mag earlier this year. You know, you guys now, how old are you? Um, 18, nearly 19. Wow, OK, and Thomason? 17. Wow, OK, so it is... They're both rising stars of the screen, and that means having to grow up quickly. They're doing media interviews, turning up at events, being on set for long periods of time. In a way, they're also having to be role models for other young girls and women, so what impact do their choices as artists make in the long run? I think in terms of what we do as actors, making good decisions about what we put out there and um, you know, the, the characters that we play and the messages that they tell young women and young people in our generation. I mean, when I was in The Changeover, you know, Laura's a really strong, young Māori teenager who is just headstrong and knows her mind and it's just they're really important qualities to be putting out there in the world so I think having the a platform that we have mm-hmm. making those conscious decisions and broadcasting positive yeah, yeah I don't and know embodiment also, of women yeah. yeah making the right the decisions that are right for you mm. so if people come up to you and say oh can I do a photo shoot with you and then their aim is to exploit you in some way or like make it about a sexual mm. thing about like showing some shoulders and like um but just making it a real kind of exploiting who you are and kind of just yeah. being strong and knowing who you are and not and having the courage to say no that's not who I am and mm. I'm gonna yeah. I mean like in terms of like characters that have you been offered other characters that are kind of equally strong I mean you know I've read some scripts and um you know had some auditions and it's you can read a character and see, oh, you know, she's strong in this way, but then there's also other elements. I don't know, I guess unless I feel entirely happy about what I'm putting out there, and of course this person that I'll be playing isn't me, and I've got to remember that, but the values and even that that character's putting out into the world, I mean, people are going to see it and they're going to take whatever they choose to take from it, and I think that's really important to be discerning around that. Because the extra pressure now is that you guys are role models. Yeah. And that's kind of, is that a bit of a burden, a weight to bear? Like, how do you feel? I think it's... If you're kind of you're given this platform and you're given this opportunity, you know, 
support other females and other men and be yourself and kind of put out there what you want to put out there, whether it's helping animals or climate change or pollution or whatever, um, yeah, just kind of... I know, it's a really amazing opportunity and one that not a lot of people get to have. I mean, of course, your mum, Miranda Harcourt, you've got the strong female in your mm-hmm. life. I mean, has mm-hmm. she been a source of inspiration for you? Yes, she really has. And my mum and my dad, they're both incredible and they both know a lot about the business. And when I'm making decisions, I really look to them and go, you know, what do you think about this? And I've learnt a lot from them through osmosis and just being around them and sort of seeing their values and it's helped to build my kind of character. Um, but yeah, and Mum, she's just, she's awesome. She doesn't care at all what other people think about her, so mm. that's awesome. That's an amazing role model to have. Thomason and Erina have arrived in the industry at a time when the Me Too movement is front and centre. If you've been on Twitter or Facebook in the past day or two, you may have noticed the words Me Too are dominating Hundreds of thousands of women and some men have taken to social media to share Has gripped the globe and sent shockwaves through New Zealand. In response to the scandal that's rocking Hollywood. So how are they impacted by that as young female artists? What's a reality? It's like, you know, we're coming into it in a time where this is being spoken about. Lucky that, you know, we're coming into the industry now rather than 20 years ago. I mean, it's... um, Changes are happening in their big ones. Yeah, so, and also we're super lucky not to have to experience that mm. stuff that wasn't being thought about or noticed or taken seriously back then. Mm. With um, you know, Internet, young yeah. yeah people, yeah, just young girls and even young boys being taken advantage of. And um, but also it's the f- this it being on your mind all the time. I have been. Like recently, if I'm in the in a room with just a bunch of guys or a guy, I do go, oh, like I'm vulnerable in this moment. Mm. It's just so on your mind at this time. Lastly, back to modern girls in bed and looking at what the millennials in the play are affected by. We were really interested in that format of Top Girls where you have women from different strains of history all braided together and then kind of putting that in the context of like the age of um, information and where these girls just have like so much access to information to history to art to all this stuff that they kind of are like overloaded with opinions of how to be and how to deal because while we could say that life for women in our past was hard life for young girls and women today is even harder our message is that there's there's no single way to be, there's no single form of feminism and there's no single form of heroism because, you know, there's big acts of heroism and then there's bringing your kid into the green room when you're working and that's like an act of heroism. I've been mentoring a teenager recently and a really strong sense of frustration I get from her is that there are old men running the world and they're making decisions that she and her friends will have to live with over the next 20 years, the effects of those decisions. And she feels really powerless and voiceless. Mm. But actually when we look back in history, there were difficult times always through history and Kate Shepard had to go on bed rest because of nervous exhaustion and there were lots of people who took to drink and, you know, uh, it's it's really hard to compare then and now. So I think we're trying to do so with a lot of understanding and generosity and also just realise that everyone has their foibles. You know, no one's perfect, even yeah. if you did achieve votes for women. 
you would have had hard times and maybe not always have been the nicest person. Yeah. But, but do you think that women actually have to work harder to be stronger? I mean, femme strength is perhaps more tied into, traditionally more tied into emotional intelligence. And that means um, that it's a bit less performative as like strength, so that it's more about kind of reflecting on yourself saying, I need to rest or I need to not go to that thing or I need to not engage with that fight. You know, whereas I think traditionally more masculine strength is about going in there and, you know, powering through no matter what. And I think... Making your voice heard, making a contribution, make sure it's recognised. The consumption of coffee, tea and meat are forbidden here. I tell the nurses that I feel different, yes, so much more healthy. But privately, I suspect that the only way to feel better is to unsee the greed for power in the world. We're interested in how you choose your battles and what is important to you. Are you going to sacrifice your health for your art you know are you going to use your time when you're sick in bed to make wonderful new plans for your future you know it's about kind of choices and being careful with your thoughts and being careful with yourself and that's a form of strength You've been listening to Beyond Kate. Special thanks to to Papa, Natonga Sound and Vision and Archives New Zealand. The 1893 Women's Suffrage Petition is housed at He Tohu, the National Library of New Zealand. Thanks also to Shannon Honui-Thompson. The studio engineer for this episode was William Saunders. The dialogue coach for the series and podcast team is Adam McCauley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. And I'm your host and producer, Sonia Sly. Next time on Beyond Kate, we'll delve into the topic of equality in education, when a good education for a girl meant learning to bake the perfect scone. If you'd like to subscribe or listen again, you can head to Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, Stitcher, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you soon. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.